Morning, everyone. Uh, along with Tim, I want to say hello and welcome, especially if uh, maybe this is your first time tuning in or uh, you've just checked us out, found us somewhere on the internet. Uh, great to have you here. My name's Matt, and um, it's my pleasure to be bringing the word to you today. Uh, I thought we'd start with a word of prayer, and so I'd invite you just to, uh, to pray along with me. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful for uh, the many ways that you continue to work uh, in our community, in our lives. We're thankful, God, for, uh, for your common grace in terms of things like vaccines that have been developed and uh, are beginning to be administered. Uh, Lord, I pray that they would come quickly. Uh, I pray, Lord, that, uh, that our community would be um, hopeful, uh, not just in our medical care system. We're thankful for them, thankful for everyone who's working so hard for us, Lord. But, but ultimately, uh, I pray, Lord, that we would find a greater hope. And so I pray for our time now, Lord, that you would remind us of the greater hope that comes through your son Jesus, Lord, that perhaps you would uh, reveal to us uh, in, a, in a fuller extent the way that you've already worked to bring us everything that we need. And uh, I pray, Lord, that this would be uh, a time of encouragement and, uh, and conviction. And Lord, that uh, you would open our hearts and minds to see uh, truths about ourselves and about you and about how you're working in the world. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Tim said, uh, today we are going to be the last little bit of Esther chapter 2 and then uh, chapter 3. Um, but I want to begin by asking a trivia question. Uh, there's not really anyone here in the room. There's a few people, but uh, you can play along at home if you like. Uh, here is the trivia question. Uh, what is the highest grossing movie of all time? All time, all the movies ever made. What is the one that made the most money? Uh, I'm not sure what you said at home or if you're guessing out loud, but the answer is this, uh, Avengers Endgame. This is sort of the, the last Avengers movie that came out. Uh, you can see the total there, $2.7 billion and a bunch of change. That is how much money they made for that one movie, which is incredible. Uh, even more incredible is how much the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe franchise made. So this is all the, all the movies, if you know them, uh, Spider-Man, Ammon, all the together, they have made $22 billion. Uh, that, that, that's a lot of money uh, by anyone's standards. And, um, and actually, that's uh, far ahead of the second uh, highest ranking uh, franchise, movie franchise, which is Star Wars. Star Wars brought in $10 billion, which is still a lot of money, but half as much, obviously. And surprisingly, number three uh, in the standings is Harry Potter, $9.2 billion. Now, the reason I bring this up is because what I noticed in looking at all of these big movie franchises, all the ones that had earned all this money, is that many of them were really kind of about the same thing. Many of them were about this uh, epic, massive conflict between good and evil. In fact, if you look at the 20 highest ranking movie franchises, uh, you'll find only four of them that are not really about this big you know, battle between good and evil. Uh, on that list of those who are different is Jurassic Park which we can kind of understand because it's dinosaurs. Everyone likes dinosaurs. Um, Toy Story and Shrek uh, both earned their, their franchises about $3 billion. Uh, Fast and the Furious, which I don't really understand what that whole franchise is about. I don't know if there's good guys or bad guys. They kind of all seem bad, but they drive different cars, I think. I'm not sure. Anyway, but that is a little different. Still earned a whole bunch of money. But most of them, 16 of the franchise movies were about this thing. There's this big conflict, good and evil, over many, many, many chapters. In fact, we have books like that as well, like Lord of the Rings, which is about this epic saga, uh, Sauron trying to take over Middle Earth. And uh, as you read these books and watch these movies, here's the thing. 
If you were to just watch one scene from a movie or one chapter, you might get the sense that there's some sort of conflict going on, but you would, you would not understand really what that means unless you knew the bigger conflict. Unless you had a sense that this one battle was part of a much, a much bigger conflict, a much bigger war that is going on. And the reason I bring that up is because that's kind of what we see in our text today. We're going to see a relatively small conflict between Mordecai and Haman, but it, it expands very quickly uh, to this massive plan to exterminate the entire Jewish race. I mean, it's this, this huge event that balloons massively, and unless you understand kind of the bigger picture of what's going on, it's difficult to comprehend, what, first of all, why it got so big and what exactly this is about. In fact, what we see here in our text is something that I think is reflected in all the movies and books that we enjoy watching or reading. And that is this. There is actually a conflict, a deep, big, epic conflict going on in our world. And it is a conflict between good and evil. It's, it's a conflict between the good God who made the universe and the devil who wants to either take his place or just destroy everything that he has made. Now, this conflict is not, um, is not a conflict with no end. In fact, we know how it ends. Even Satan knows how it ends. He's going to be defeated. But the focus, the, the important question for us is in the midst of the conflict, um, how, do we, how do we maintain our faith? How do, we, uh, how do we continue to be faithful to the Lord, continue to be encouraged to not allow all of the, the battles and the attack that exists in our lives to discourage us? Well, for that, we're going to look to our text and uh, we're going to begin by sort of a transition section looking at Mordecai and uh, a plot against the king. So if you have your uh, Bible with you, you can open it there. We'll put these verses on the screens. We're going to begin in verse 19. And um, just to note, this is actually a few years after verse 18. So we're, we're jumping in here. Here's what it says. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So uh, just pause there for a moment. Um, this is, as I said, a couple years after. Um, everyone's kind of settled into their new positions. Esther is queen. Mordecai is working at an administrative position in the palace. The king, as we can see, has not changed much at all. For reasons that aren't exactly clear, he's still gathering more virgins into the palace, probably just to add to his harem, even though he's already chosen a queen. So he's, he's still the vile uh, King Ahasuerus that we saw from before. Uh, but now we get a window into Mordecai's character. So here's verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So here Mordecai makes a very shrewd move. Uh, instead of just telling one of his superiors about this plot, he goes to Esther directly, he goes to the king, and that means that uh, he gets the credit. The strange thing here, at least at this point, is that while it's noted, like Mordecai saved the king's life, he doesn't actually get any reward. Uh, this is one of the sort of plot points in the story of Esther that are, is kind of left untied. And it will come back in a couple of chapters, but for now we can just see this happened, this is the kind of guy Mordecai is, stand-up guy, serving the king faithfully, 
And next, though, uh, we see the conflict, really the big conflict in the story of Esther that ties into the bigger conflict we're going to see in the Bible itself and in the world. And for this, um, we're not going to put the verses on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. So if you have your Bible, read along. Uh, but then after, we're going to come back and look at some key texts and understand this uh, even more. So here is Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, not Mordecai, Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew." And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Uh, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So there you can see the offense, the initial offense, and then Haman's reaction, which is this, this horrible reaction. And now we're going to see how he plans to put it into motion. He can't just do this on his own. He's got to go to the king. He's got to figure things out. Here's verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. We'll explain that in a moment. Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge over the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. So it didn't take much for the king to agree on this wicked plan, and now it's put into action. Now the messengers go out. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and governors over all the provinces, to all the officials of all the peoples, to every province in his own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Here's what went out. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So that's our chapter. And um, you can see the, the conflict that is escalating. But let's ask um, and answer a couple of smaller questions. Uh, number one, in verse 7, what exactly is being talked about when it says 
pure there. They cast pure. You can see it. Um, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So what's going on here is essentially uh, Haman consulting the gods. He's kind of letting fate decide when would be the day of the destruction of the Jewish people. So when it says they were kind of casting lots month after month, it means they were going through the months. And then when it landed on a certain month, they would say, okay, that's the day. That's the month that's going to happen. And it actually lands on the 12th month. So it's at the end of the year, like 11 months away. Uh, so that's, that's what that is all about. Next question. Why in the world would the king go along with his plan? I mean... Killing off a whole race of people is something that you would think um, you would want a lot of details. You would ask a lot of questions. You would try to figure out exactly what, what is going on here. But what we see is that Haman is very vague about the whole thing. Uh, here's verse 8. Here's, here's what he says. Uh, Haman said to King Hashuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's law so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. You would think that the king would ask what people he's talking about or how many of them there are or where exactly they are in his kingdom or like why doesn't this profit me? What are their laws? What are they disobeying? If I kill all of these people, is that going to impact our tax, our taxes? Like there's a lot of questions you would think that he would ask, but in fact, he doesn't ask any questions. He just gives over his ring, signs the decree, which is very surprising given the magnitude of this decree, but it's not that surprising uh, given what we know about King Ahasuerus. Uh, up to this point, I think we'd agree he doesn't really seem to be a details kind of guy. And also, uh, he clearly does not care that much about the subjects of his kingdom. I mean, when he's sent out for a new queen, he just take women from all over the kingdom, doesn't, doesn't care at all about their lives or, or what's going to happen to them. We also notice here that Haman, he chose his words very carefully. See, the cardinal sin in Persia was not assimilating, like not going along with the laws, not, you know, supporting the empire. And that's exactly what Haman says. Look, these people, they have their own laws. They're not following your laws. So the, the king basically thought, look, this is just another um, rebellion. Happens all the time in an empire this size. Let's just go and take them out. Not a big deal. The other thing, of course, to sweeten the pot is, um, is the money. 10,000 uh, talents of silver is a lot of money. Uh, historians estimate that this would have been about half of the tax income for the entire empire. So this is like an astronomical amount of money. The thing that doesn't occur to the king is, is to ask Haman how he would possibly pay the king this much money. Because there's no way that Haman has this much money. So it's not clear exactly how he's going to pay the king. But again, details, not that important. What is important, what was important, is that King Ahasuerus felt uh, more powerful, more wealthy... And Haman uh, got the revenge that he wanted. And so that's why in verse 15, end of the chapter, it says, The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So they were at peace, they were chilling on the patio, and everyone else was going nuts looking at this decree. So let's go back and examine how we got to this point, like how the conflict kind of built to this point. Because there's a couple of questions, things that, that kind of don't seem to make sense. For one... Why does Mordecai refuse to bow to Haman? I mean, it's pretty clear that Haman is a vile human being, not worthy of respect, not worthy of honor, but that probably would describe most of the officials in the Persian Empire. 
That, that really would describe the king. And Mordecai, he, he honored the king. He saved the king's life. Um, we have to also be clear, when it says bow down to Haman, it, they're not asking Mordecai to worship Haman like a god. It's, this bowing down is just a sign of respect for those in authority. It would be very similar to like a salute in the army. Um, in the army, there's a saying, you, you salute the rank, not the officer, or not, not the person. So you may have a commanding officer who's a total jerk, but you still salute because you're, you're really showing respect to the rank. It was that kind of thing. So it's tough to understand why this was the time that Mordecai decided, even though he's working the palace, why would you just not bow down to Haman? Second question is, uh, of course, why does Haman react to this relatively small offense in such a massive way? I mean, this seems like an overreaction even by ancient Persian standards. Like, what is the deal? Why didn't you just take it out on, on Mordecai? Well, the short answer to both of these questions is that there is history between these two people, between these two men. Um, not, not just a personal history, but, but their ancestors have history. See, if you look at when the servants in the palace were trying to get Mordecai to explain, like, what are you doing, Mordecai? You're crazy. You're going to get yourself killed. Just bow down. Why, why aren't you doing that? Eventually, he tells them, look, I'm a Jew as if that explains everything. And it kind of did, though, because the other bit of information we get is about um, Haman's ancestors. It says that he is an Agagite. And if you know the history uh, of the Bible or just of that time, they would, people would have known that there's a lot of conflict between the Jews and the, the Agagites. Um, in fact, in verse 10, uh, here's, here's what it says. Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews... That's key, enemy of the Jews, because in fact, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were like the arch enemies of the Jewish people all throughout the Old Testament. If you look, there's tons of battles between the Amalekites and the Jews. Uh, sometimes the, the Israelites, the Jews won. There's that one story where Moses has to keep his arms in the air and God will, will bless the battle and they defeat the Amalekites. There's another time, uh, Numbers 14, where the Israelites fought the Amalekites without the blessing of God and they were whipped. They were totally defeated. So it goes back and forth, back and forth. There's this, this animosity that grows between these two people. But what we need to understand is that the Amalekites weren't just they represented more than just an enemy nation. What they represented was the complete rejection of God. I mean, they, they completely uh, turned away from God. They were never God's people. They never wanted anything to do with God's commands. Um, they completely embraced idolatry. And so they represented, uh, in, in essence, evil. Evil in the world. Uh, if you think about... Um, what God is trying to do, what he was trying to do all through the Old Testament, he was trying to bring hope and goodness into the world. In fact, he was trying to bring an answer to sin because sin is the thing that robbed humanity of our hope. In the Garden of Eden, we had an eternal hope. We, we could live there with the blessing of God in perfect peace and security. When we were tempted into sin by Satan, we experienced not just a separation from God, but a separation from Eternal hope, eternal peace, eternal joy. And now all of us in our sin, we have eternal death to look forward to, not life. So what God was doing in the Old Testament was bringing an answer to that. Bringing a hope, a salvation from sin itself. And he was doing it through the Jewish people. 
that's the thing. It's not just that the Jews were God's people. They were his instrument of bringing ultimate hope to all the people of the world. The gospel of Jesus has its roots all the way back in the Old Testament. And listen to what it says here about the gospel of Jesus in Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's another way of saying not just to the Jewish people, but to all people. The gospel, the hope of God, the answer to sin that everyone needs, that eternal hope is for all people. And it came through the Jewish people. The Amalekites were intent on destroying the Jewish people, which would have meant that they would be destroying the hope for all of humanity. See, the very things that defined the Amalekites were the things that robbed humanity, robbed us of, of peace and joy and contentment and hope. Here's a, I'm just going to show you a couple of verses about how the Amalekites are described uh, in the Bible. Here's Numbers 24:20. Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. Why? Well, because they completely embraced sin. They, they would never turn to God for forgiveness. Exodus 17, 16, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Why? Because God is always at war with sin. God is always opposing the sin and evil that is present in the world. See, this is why things escalated so much in our text. Because the, the, the actors in this conflict, those involved were not just Haman and Mordecai, not even just the Jews and the Amalekites, but in fact, what we're seeing here is a conflict that is between Satan and God. See, Satan's goal has really always been the same. His desire was to either take over God's kingdom or to destroy everything and everyone that God had made. So this plot from Haman is, is just one of many plots over human history where Satan is trying to take out God's people and take out the Messiah. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Think of how many times someone has tried to kill off the, the Jewish people. I mean, in the Bible, we see it a number of times with uh, Pharaoh in the Exodus story. It, it begins with a Pharaoh saying, look, take all of the Hebrew baby boys and throw them into the Nile. His goal is to, to call that race, to, to get rid of them. We see throughout the Old Testament, uh, so many groups of people trying to kill the Israelites so the Ammonites, Midianites, Hittites, Canaanites, Amalekites, all the ites, their goal is to destroy uh, this people, to, to wipe them off the face of the earth. We see that Israel was conquered by Babylon. Persia ruled over them, oppressed them. Eventually Rome oppressed them. In the Christmas story, Herod, he, he killed all of the babies, two years uh, old and younger, all the baby boys, and his goal was to take out the Messiah, the, this new king that was born. And then when Jesus escaped that and was born, this, this rhythm of persecution shifted to, to be not just to the Jewish people, to the Christian church as well. In fact, you see persecution after persecution all through the first century against the early church. And in fact, all throughout human history, you see both the Jewish people and the, and the Christians persecuted, violently opposed, all sorts of violence in an attempt to put them down and to eradicate them. Most recently, World War II where the Nazis exterminated six million Jews and would have kept going, killing every Jew that they could find if they had not been stopped. So when you think about that history and then you look at Haman's 
plot, the decree read that um, the people of Persia were to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. When you, when you think of those two things together, it doesn't seem out of place. In fact, what you see is this, this rhythm, this pattern of conflict, this pattern of aggression towards God's people. In fact, uh, this conflict was spoken of by God himself all the way back in Genesis. In chapter 3, after the fall into sin, God is speaking to Adam and Eve and to Satan, giving the consequences, and he says to them, there will be enmity. There will be hostility between your offspring and your offspring. He, what he's saying is, look, there is going to be conflict. This conflict that started here today is going to keep going until the end, until the end of the story. So, like many of the events in the book of Esther, there are hidden layers of significance below the surface. Yes, Haman really did hate Mordecai. He really was offended. He really is that petty of a man. He was. He really did want to wipe out all the Jews from the face of the earth just because of that. But also, also this was just another manifestation of Satan's desire to wipe out all of God's people. There's a conflict going on. And so in light of that, in light of what we see in this conflict here in the story of Esther, the question for us as we read it today is, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our faith? Well, there are three things I think we can glean here and, and take out that can uh, help us in our walk with the Lord. Here's the first one. There is still a deep conflict going on in our world. God's people are still being attacked. But there is an important difference. There's an important difference between uh, the time of Esther and today. And that, that difference comes down to the identity of God's people. See, back then, if, if you were to say you were one of God's people, there were certain ethnic and cultural uh, specific things that were true about you. You were a Jew from Israel. That, that's what it meant. But once Jesus arrived, all of that changed. Because to be one of God's people was not just to be Jewish. Uh, take a look at Romans 3, 29 to 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You see, the, the common denominator there is faith in Jesus, faith in God, faith in his Messiah. That's the thing that makes you one of God's people. So this means that there's no longer an all-out war simply against the Jewish people. It's now um, a conflict, a battle against anyone who claims the name of Jesus. And so Satan's ultimate goal then is, is shifted a bit. Instead of just trying to kill all of God's people, now um, that, that isn't actually a win for Satan because if you kill someone who has faith and hope beyond the grave, which Christians do, that's, that you're not actually destroying anything. What Satan really wants to do is to destroy our faith. He wants to reveal in the hearts of people who are claiming to follow God that they don't actually believe. That their faith is actually weak. In fact, it, it's, it's not real. That's what Satan has tried to do really all along. If you think of Job, that's what he was trying to do. He's trying to afflict him to the point that he would abandon God. With Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Satan wants to sift you. By that, it means that he wants to put so much pressure on you that you're left on one side, your faith is on the other. Now, there are, there are still overt and violent attacks against God's people. We're going to put a map up of, um, of the persecution in the world um, in 2020. So in this last year, there's our Open Doors Ministry ranks the countries in the world where it's most difficult to be a Christian. Um, it's a bit difficult to see, but North Korea 
is, is at the top of the list. It's there every year is the most difficult, dangerous place to try to live out your faith. But there are other countries that, that sadly are growing. One of them is a small country in Africa called Burkina Faso. There this past year, priests and pastors uh, were kidnapped and killed. 200 churches uh, were closed and about 500,000 people had to leave their homes because of their faith in Christ. There is this overt, violent attack on the Christian church and God's people still to this day. But just because we don't live in one of those countries doesn't mean that there isn't some measure of attack for us as well. So that's our next point. There is a deep conflict still in the world, but number two, we, we should expect to be attacked. We should expect to be attacked. See, the Jews in Persia at this time, um, I don't think they were expecting this, this kind of a declaration of war against them. I mean, probably they were just minding their own business, going about their lives in the empire. Some of them were in Jerusalem, rebuilding the city. Others were just, you know, doing life, going to school, starting a business. They, they weren't expecting this. In fact, if you talked to them at that time, I think they probably would have said, you know what, it's a relatively peaceful time right now in light of the history of the Jewish history in the Old Testament. I mean, this is fairly peaceful. I know we're in exile, but it's, it's fairly peaceful. The thing is, it wasn't actually as peaceful as they thought. And that's, that's instructive for us because I think for us here in Canada as Christians, we, we could say or have the impression that we're kind of living in a time of peace. I mean, we live in a country that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. We have religious freedoms written into our charter. Um, a lot of us, some of, some of the older among us, could maybe remember a time when most of the people on our block went to a Christian church on Sunday morning. I know there's more turmoil now, but by and large, we could say, look, it's fairly peaceful. We're kind of in a time of peace. But what this, this text reminds us is that this side of heaven, actually, it's never a time of peace for God's people. We need to recognize that there is always more and more conflict coming. The devil is always at work. And his, his work, his destructive work, his tactics, his attacks is to undermine and destroy our faith. And he does it in a number of ways. I mean, for some, it's overt, it's violent, it's persecution, happens all over the world. Here in Canada, for the, for the most part, it comes in more subtle ways. For example, uh, sometimes he uses government decrees to make it much more difficult for us to do life as a church. That, that's a test of our faith. It's an attack, in a sense, in terms of how we go about and whether we remain faithful to what God has called us to. Sometimes, I'd say most of the time, he uses um, unexpected adversity to discourage us. And by that I mean things like what happened in Job's, Job's life, where money is taken away, health is taken away, relationships break down, all sorts of things that we were just living our life and then this happens and we begin to think to ourselves, God, where are you? What are you doing? I wasn't expecting this. In fact, I expected the opposite because you said you were for me. You promised you'd take care of me and and we're put in a position where we're, we're questioning our faith. We're doubting God. Other times, a lot of the time, uh, Satan attacks us by tempting us uh, through our weaknesses. Through our own sins, through our own carnal appetites, where we begin to think that going against God's word is best for us. All of those things, his goal is the same, that we would lose sight of our need for Christ. And that we would doubt the promises of God. This is more likely to happen. It, those attacks are more likely to be successful if we aren't expecting them. If we're thinking, look, it's smooth sailing. 
God's got us. We're God's people, and so he's going to fight for us. He's going to go ahead of us, and so he's not going to allow any adversity. Then we're going to be caught flat-footed, and we are going to begin to doubt. We are going to begin to wonder who God is and whether he's, he's actually being faithful to us. See, it may be that you've been attacked recently. It may be that those kinds of thoughts have entered your mind, that you've been tempted to, to think, you know, I, I don't really know if God's even aware of what's going on. I mean, if he really loved me, he, he wouldn't let this happen and this at the same time. Those kind of thoughts come into our mind a lot because it's tough to reconcile the, the good things that God promises and then the reality of our life. So if that's you this morning, take heart. Take heart because none of these challenges, none of these attacks are unexpected. None of them are outside of the plan of God. In fact, what we see over and over again in scripture is that even in the midst of these difficult times, God is with us. We're never alone. And here's our third point, which says just that. God, God is at work even when we are attacked. I want to look at the details of the plot that Haman uh, had towards the Jews. Here's uh, verse 13. Letters, it says, were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, uh, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now, the thing that's striking about this is, is that what Haman does, notice he doesn't mobilize the Persian army. What he does is he turns all of the Persian people against the Jews. Because what he says to them is, look, your neighbor who's a Jew, the, the shopkeeper next to you, the, the person in school, all of those people, look, they have stuff. You can take their stuff. All you need to do is kill them and you take it for yourselves. So if you're a Jew, imagine, you're totally outnumbered. You're a minority in this massive empire. There's nowhere for you to go. Even if you start running 12 months from now, you'd probably still be in the Persian empire. It's that big. You would have, it would be very tempting to feel completely abandoned by God because on the surface, it, it seems that way. In fact, in verse 11, the, the language here is interesting. Uh, the king says to Haman, uh, the money is given to you to make this happen. The people also are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. What the king is saying is, look, these, these people, whoever they are, he doesn't know who they are. They're my people. If they're in my kingdom, they're mine. I'm giving them to you. You can do with them whatever you want. And for the Jews at the time, it probably felt that way. It felt like this empire, there is no opposing them. There is no way to resist them that they were completely in the hands of the empire and they were going to be crushed. But that wasn't the case. Nothing could have been farther from the truth. The truth is that while the king had a lot of power, he did not own those people. The Jews were not his to do with as he pleased. They were God's people. And they were still in God's hands. And, and what we see slowly happening throughout the pages of the story of Esther is that God was already moving the pieces into place for their deliverance. He had not abandoned them. He had not forgotten about them. He was still right there with them. So here's what we need to know. When conflict comes in our life, not if, when it comes in our life, God will, for the most part, do one of two things. Number one, he will intervene in a miraculous way in a striking way. We pray, people are healed, 
Um, money comes up from somewhere, relationships are restored. We see him do this over and over again. Exodus is that story. That's the, sort of the epic story of God intervening in a miraculous way. He does do that a lot of the time. There are other times he intervenes in a less obviously miraculous way. That's what he's doing here in Esther. He's moving things about so that when the time comes, things work out for good, even though we didn't even really see it happen. We didn't necessarily see the hand of God reach in and do it. We wouldn't say miracle, but clearly God is at work. He does that as well. But sometimes he doesn't intervene. Sometimes he allows the attack to go forth. And the amazing thing about the conflict that's going on around us is that even in those times when God has allowed the attack to continue, he is still working for our good. Because what we need to understand is that this conflict between God and Satan, between good and evil, it's, it's not a conflict between equal powers. God is so big, so majestic, so intimately involved in every aspect of the universe that he even uses the attacks of the enemy to bring about his good plans. That's what Romans 8.28 says. Clearly, the promises, all things work out for the good of those who love God. That's what we're seeing here in the text of, of Esther. The challenge, the challenge though, is in the midst of the attack. On the day when that decree was read for the Jewish people is, is to believe that, is to trust him, is to remain faithful. And you may be in that situation today where you, where you know on the one side of your brain, look, I know God is for me. I know he's promised this, but here's what I'm seeing day after day. I can't, how do I square this circle? Well, to encourage you, I wanted to, to bring you a story of someone who went through just a vicious attack, painful attack, and yet was able by the grace of God to see, to see the blessing of God in the midst of it. So here's the story. This is of a man named Hassan Dakani Tafti. You can see a picture of him there with his family. He was the Anglican Archbishop of Iran. So a Christian man uh, living at the time of Iran in the 70s and 80s, which was during the Iranian Revolution. So just a very dangerous time to be a Christian in Iran. He advocated for uh, more justice and equality and freedom in the society, but the opposite happened. Uh, there was increasing persecution against the Christian church. Christian hospitals were seized, missions agencies were raided, uh, property was stolen, and there was increasing threats of violence. In fact, one day uh, in uh, October of 1979, gunmen entered his home, and they came into his master bedroom and shot, uh, fired five shots at him and his wife. Miraculously, he was not hit at all, but his wife got a bullet in the hand. Uh, they decided to flee the country. It was just too dangerous, but his, his children had grown up by that point. They were, they were adults. They were living, doing life in Iran, and they chose to stay. And sadly, a few months later, in May of 1980, his son, Baram, you can see his picture there when he's older, was returning home from work. He was ambushed, uh, driven to a field, and then shot and killed. Hassan wasn't even in the country. In fact, he wasn't even able to go back for the funeral of his son. Uh, but I want to read to you uh, the prayer that he wrote to be read at his son's funeral. And uh, we'll put it up on the screen. Here's what he writes. He says, Oh God, we remember not only Baram, but also his murderers. Not because they killed him in the prime of his youth and made our hearts bleed and our tears flow. Not because with this savage act they have brought further disgrace on the name of our country among the civilized world. But because through their crimes we now follow thy footsteps more closely in the way of sacrifice. 
The terrible fire of the calamity burns up all selfishness and possessiveness in us. Its flame reveals the depth of depravity and meanness and suspicion and hatred and the measure of sinfulness in human nature. It makes obvious as never before our need to trust in God's love as shown in the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. I'm not sure about you, but when I'm attacked, nothing about God's love seems very obvious to me. Nothing about it seems clear. What seems very clear most of the time is the injustice, is the anger that I feel that this is happening, the doubts that are, that are welling up in me that if God is a God of love, how could he let this happen? But by God's grace, in time, the Spirit of God does help me to see the things that the bishop is talking about. Helps, helps me to see the obvious need that I have to trust in God's love helps me to see the work of Jesus on the cross to save me. What happens in those moments is that instead of my faith shrinking, it actually grows. See, the, the beautiful and amazing thing about the way that, that God works in our lives is that he, he does the exact opposite of what Satan wants in the midst of the attack. Satan's goal is that our faith would shrink, that it would fall apart, that we'd see this hard time and we think God doesn't love us. But in fact, what happens when we have the cross in our mind is that our faith grows. Because what comes to mind is the truth that God has done everything necessary for us to have hope in the midst of adversity. What comes to mind is the truth that God has always been working throughout all of human history and even in our lives to bring about good for us because he's gracious and loving and powerful. There's actually a little glimmer, a glimpse of this in our text. Uh, If we look closely, see um, the decree that was sent out with all the couriers, you know, that um, it, it went out on the 13th day of the first month. Well, that was, that was the weekend of Passover. So what that means is that on the day when, when all the Jewish people all over the Persian Empire were reading this, this death decree, they were about to celebrate and remember the Passover, the time when God had saved them from certain doom all those years ago. And so I, I'm not sure to what extent they saw that connection. But, but I got to believe that there were faithful Jewish people at the time who'd looked at each other and said, let's remember. Let's celebrate who God is. Let's remember the way that he has intervened in our history to preserve our people, to bring salvation, to save us. And let's trust him that even in the midst of this, where we look around, we don't see any hope for salvation, that God is still at work. See, this is the nature of what it means to be one of God's people, that there will be conflict over and over and over again, attack, adversity, temptation to abandon our faith, and yet the whole time we can move forward with confidence, not necessarily because of the circumstances in the moment, but because of we know our God. We can look back and remember what he's done. We can look to the cross of Jesus and see that God spared nothing to save us, to bring us that hope that we need beyond this life. So if you are in a moment this week where you're feeling attacked, where you're feeling doubtful, can I, can I leave you with these words? These words from God, from Isaiah 41, uh, verse 10, where he says simply this, Fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let me pray that those truths would genuinely fill us with what we need today. 
Let me pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the story of Esther. Thank you that in it, there is such a complexity of truths about you, your sovereign hand, your love. God, I just pray that those truths would help us today. Help us, please, Lord, to grab hold of of what we know to be true about you, even in the midst of attack. I pray, Lord, for those that are feeling so discouraged. God, to the ministry of your spirit, would you lift us up? Would you encourage us? Would you remind us of the truths that we, we know to be real? The fact that, Jesus, you came, that you died for us to bring us that hope that we need, not just for this life, but forever life. God, I pray that that would genuinely fill us with hope and that we would see that, in fact, you do bring about are good even in the most difficult situations. Help us, please, to have eyes to see like the bishop did, the way that you're working. And I do pray, Lord, I do pray for those uh, brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world, in Burkina Faso, in North Korea, wherever there is persecution, violence, Lord, I pray you would strengthen them. Lord, preserve them. And by that, I mean preserve their faith. May they continue to be a light amongst the, the darkness in the world. May you be glorified in that. And Lord, may we be blessed through it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.